0: Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary
1: Chapel, East Anaheim.
0: Uh, A couple of things real quick before we get into
1: our study tonight.
0: Uh, Number one, last week, Andrew is going to be leaving us pretty quickly. Uh, he got some exciting opportunities. He actually gets to go and work for the man
1: Elon Musk up in Palo Alto get a Tesla, he's gonna be building your computer for it. So that's uh that's
0: pretty cool. Uh but anyways we're planning something to kind of do for him before he leaves on uh May 13th, two Saturdays uh now. Uh we're gonna have a barbecue kind of a party at a um,
1: park right up the street. Uh so yeah mark that on your calendar. Hopefully you could be there. Uh, uh, Put eleven. I'll put something out with exact information. I'm pretty sure I put eleven. Um, but yeah, Yorba Regional Park. So
0: yeah, just come at eleven or so and we'll be there until people leave. We'll have some games to play, some food to eat. Uh it'll be a good time. Uh
1: secondly, uh I am going to Israel in July by through the July 18th, 26th, sorry. And uh, there's some spots open. So
0: if that's something you're interested in, let me know. And I can get you some details. Our church goes to Israel every year, Pastor Bob and Amir. And it's a fantastic trip. Uh, But uh, I've had some people tell me it's kind of out of reach for them. It's a little bit too expensive, or the time of the year that they go just doesn't work. And so we kind of put this together make it a little bit more affordable. We're going in the summer, so if you're a teacher or in school, fits with that schedule. Uh, I've been, I got to live in Israel. I got to minister in Israel for about a year and a half. I've been a part of it. a lot of different groups going to Israel, a lot of different people. And everybody that comes there, I've seen it just change them. I've seen it ignite their walk with Jesus and, and their spiritual life in just an amazing way. And I want every Christian to be able to to experience that, not just the really wealthy retired people that have the time and the money to be able to do that. So that's kind of the heart of this. So if that's something you want to do, let me know. I can give you some more information. So real quick, uh, one more thing I wanted to share. I saw today uh, Elon Musk said this. Uh, you know, Twitter. Everybody was making a big deal a few weeks ago about how uh, he was making people pay to have that blue check mark next to their name, right? It's a big deal to have this blue check mark, I guess, because it, you know, validates who you are, makes you so important. And so you had to pay $8 a month to have that added to your name. Well, he just came out and said that if you identify on your page with they, them pronouns, he's going to make you pay $16 a month because oh. you're more than one person. So I thought that
1: was kind of funny. <laughs> so, uh but, anyways, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Let me
0: go ahead and, and read our verses again and pray for us and then uh, get into it. In verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law, of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple
1: in the Lord, in whom you also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So God, I do
0: thank you for these truths here on this passage, Lord, and I pray that you would just speak truth to us from them, Lord. Uh, We do believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe that you're still doing miraculous works, Lord, and one of those is prophecy. We believe that your word could be spoken in a way that's powerful, that pierces our hearts, that edifies us, exhorts us, and comforts us, Lord, and so we ask you to do that right now. Lord, we need your word. We need your wisdom. We need your direction more now than ever. We live in a corrupt and chaotic world uh, that wants to pull us in all kinds of different directions, that wants to conform us to itself, Lord. So renew our minds with your word. Hide your word in our hearts so we don't sin against you. And may your word be a lamp unto our feet right now. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've entitled uh, this section, uh, these 11 verses, The Great Unifier. And I've entitled it The Great Unifier because that's exactly who Jesus is in this section. In verses 1 through 10, we looked last week at how Christ was the one who unified us to God. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but then we were made alive together with God in Christ. Jesus took care of that vertical separation that we had. Now, today, we're going to see how he's going to take care of the horizontal separation. He's going to reconcile us with each other. We can't be reconciled with each other until we've been reconciled with God. That's just kind of how it works. If you look back at chapter 1, in verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in the earth. You see, when the fall happened, everything started to separate. It it began to disunify. Adam and Eve, they became disunified with God. Their offspring became disunified with each other, evidenced in the fact that Cain killed Abel because he was jealous. So the, the, the very first two people that were born after the fall, one became the first murderer and the other became the first martyr. In chapter 11, this separation was so great that the people decided, no, we need to come back together. So they built this giant ziggurat uh, trying to reconcile and bring themselves together and make themselves one, this ziggurat that was going to reach up to heaven. And that only angered God further, who further disunified them. He separated the countries and separated the languages, separated their tongues. And so our text before us tonight is going to show us just how Christ is able to sum these things back up together, how he's going to bring everything back
1: together and make everything one in himself. You know, four years ago, Joe Biden launched
0: his presidential campaign on the premise that America is divided. Right? He said we're divided politically between the Republicans and the Democrats. We're rep- uh, divided racially. The emergence of groups like Black Lives Matter and the Proud Boys are evidence of this. We're divided on the basis of our gender ideology. We're divided on just about everything a group of people can be divided over. But Joe Biden promised to bring unity to our nation. That was the promise he made in his campaign, right? That he was gonna unify America. Uh, So how has he done? I don't think he's done a very good job at all doing that if you ask me. But I don't think it's necessarily all his fault. The fact is is that Joe Biden or any other politician for that matter, is impotent to solve these issues because our disunity really is a sin issue. It's not something that a human being, even the greatest ruler of this world as a human being, can solve. The Bible is clear that sin destroys, deteriorates, and disunifies. But the Scripture is also clear, especially in this section of before us, that there's only one, one way to solve that problem, and it's through the Lord. Jesus Christ and his cross, right? Because the, the sin needs to be atoned for, and only Jesus could do that. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul tells us that Jesus was able to bring together two groups of people that were more divided than the Republicans and the Democrats are today. That's the Jews and the Gentiles. That's hard to think about, right? I mean, Jews and Gentiles, that was as divided as you could be in that day. I mean, that would be like bringing together today a MAGA person and an Antifa person and and bringing them together and having fellowship. just doesn't seem likely, but that's what Christ did. You know, in Genesis 12, God begins to form a special group of people out of one man and one woman, right, out of Abram and Sarah. And God's design was that through this couple, he would form a nation that would be a light to the entire world and bring blessing to the entire world. That's what he, he called Abraham to do. In Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you, And the one who curses you, I will curse. And here it is. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, the fact that God desired to use the children of Israel as a blessing to the world is further illustrated in Exodus 19. Exodus 19, remember, God has delivered Israel. He's brought them out of Egypt through the plagues, and now they've come to Sinai. And God is going to enter a covenant With the children of Israel. And he's going to give them the law. In Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, it says this Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell all the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Did you catch that? God says that all the nations are his. Yes, Israel was to be a special people, but they weren't God's only people. He says that you are to be a kingdom of priests. To me, a holy nation. Well, what is a priest? It's somebody who offers intercession on behalf of somebody else. It's somebody who comes and and offers sacrifice or prayer for other people. And who would that be in this passage? That would be the other nations that are around Israel. If all of Israel is intended to be a nation of priests, who are they interceding for? Everybody else around them. That was who God had designed them to be. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness, and I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will point you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. They were supposed to be this holy and separate people that was a light to the nations that would cause people to want to come and be a part of the people of God. So God called Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations, But he also called them to be a distinct people or a separate people. In fact, it was their being separate or being distinct that they were to distinguish themselves in being a light to the nations. It was this distinction that was going to make people want the God of Israel. And God gave them many laws to distinguish the children of Israel from the pagan nations around them. First of all, they were only to have one God, and they weren't to make any graven images of him. That was different than the pagan nations around them. They were supposed to be distinct in the food that they ate, right? They had these dietary laws. Yeah, part of it was for health reasons, but the other part of it was, you know, that's where people come together, is around the dinner table, right? And God didn't want them to have fellowship as as pagans, so he didn't want them fellowshipping around the pagan dinner table. He wanted them being different and people coming and being around the Israelite dinner table. So they were to be distinct. They were to be distinct in the clothes that they wore, right? They weren't supposed to have two different fabrics sewn together and things like that. They were to be distinct in their sexual relationships. That's Leviticus 19. You know, you read Leviticus 19, and there's some pretty crazy stuff in there. You know, God had to tell us not to have sex with animals, right? He he had to tell us not to have sex with our parents and things like that. Well, well, yeah, because that's what the people were doing in Canaan before the children of Israel went there. And God wanted his people to be distinct from that. They were to be distinct by keeping the Sabbath. Having one day off was something that the rest of the world didn't do. But these distinctions were to keep the children of Israel pure and distinct. They were supposed to provide a witness to the people around them. However, the children of Israel became prideful because of these distinctions. And instead of trying to be a witness to the people around them, they started despising the people around them. They started to have hate and started to look down upon their neighbors because they didn't have or keep the distinctions that the children of Israel
1: did. So instead of trying to minister to Or serve these pagans, they became prideful. They did the opposite. They pushed the pagans away. It became self-righteous haters. Now we need to be careful of this.
0: This is something that we as the church tend to do too often. We tend to think, "Oh, we're holy. We don't do this. We don't do that. I don't want to go anywhere near this person that does." Right? But how are we to be a light? How are we to be a witness to the? Those people, if all we do is think that we're so much better than them, and we exclude them and things like that, the same way that Israel did. Now, as an illustration for this hatred and animosity that the Jews developed towards the people groups around them, I want us to think about Jonah for a second. Jonah is an interesting guy. He was he was an interesting prophet, right? But he was a prophet of God. He spoke the word of God. God's prophets were considered his covenant attorney. And God would send his prophets to the people to tell them, hey, you're guilty. You're breaking God's commandments. You need to repent or judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of reckoning is coming. You need to get right with God. That was the prophet's job, uh, kind of like a, a covenant attorney for God. I know what you're thinking, though. The Ninevites didn't have God's law. They, they, they didn't have the, the commandments. And that, I mean, that's what verse 12 says. Uh, how, how, are they, how is Jonah going to come to them and tell them that they are breaking God's commandments when they didn't have God's law? Well, easily, Romans 2, Paul makes it clear that they had God's moral law written on their hearts. In Romans 2, verses 14 through 16, it says, For, we, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do distinctively the things that, of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately uh, accusing or else defending them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. But Jonah was a a really unique prophet among God's prophets.
1: Yes, he was unique in that he was a horrible prophet, uh, and, and he and he hated the people that, that he was going to, to visit, but that's not the
0: distinction I'm talking about. It, Jonah was unique and distinct because he was called to go to the Ninevites. There had been prophets of God in the Old Testament that prophesied to Gentile nations. that had called the Gentile nations around them to repentance, but. Um, Jonah was different in that God had called him to actually go to Nineveh. He was the only prophet that left Israel to go and preach the word of God. And remember that there's one problem, right? Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. In fact, when God tells him to go to Nineveh, he runs in the opposite direction as far away from Nineveh as he could get (laughs) until he ends up having to be, thrown off a ship and brought there by a great fish. But why didn't Jonah Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Was it because it was too far? Was it because he didn't understand the language? Because he would be homesick? Because he didn't like the food? It was just going to be too hard? No, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. He knew that if he went and preached repentance, God would be merciful. God would be gracious to them and grant them repentance. And, and, and Jonah didn't want to see them get saved because Jonah hated them. Jonah wanted to see their destruction. In fact, Jonah became angry when he preached repentance and they responded. Jonah chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 says, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. He wanted to die. He hated the fact that the Ninevites
1: repented so much. That's how much he hated these pagan Gentiles that were in Nineveh.
0: So I ask us, are there people that you don't want to preach Christ to because they might repent and receive forgiveness? Are there people that you wouldn't preach Christ to or the good news to if you had the opportunity to because you want that person to
1: experience judgment? Is there people that we hate that much, that we dislike that much in this world? Might I remind us that the one and only true and righteous man prayed this about the evil men that were torturing him to death. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And and some of those people that he was praying for, some of those
0: torturers, he would later welcome into his kingdom. Christ was ready to forgive anybody. Christ didn't hate anybody, even the people that were killing him, the people that were despising them. He prayed for them, and one day he welcomed them into his kingdom. So if we're going to represent Christ, if we're going to be like Christ, we can't even hate those who hate us. We're called to love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us. I wish I could say that the Jews' animosity towards the Gentiles ended with Jonah, but that wasn't the case. In fact, their hatred grew and grew over the centuries. Listen to some of the ways that rabbis describe Gentiles or things that they said about Gentiles in the past. They said that the Gentiles were created to stoke the flames of hell. That was the only reason God created the Gentiles was the fan the flame. Oh, they're the original Calvinists. Uh, a certain Gentile woman came to Rabbi Eleazar and confessed that she was sinful and told them that she wanted to become righteous. She wanted to be accepted
1: into the Jewish faith because she had heard that the Jews were near to God. The rabbi was said to have responded, "No, you can't come there and slam the door.
0: In her face. Some Jewish women received, refused to help Gentile women who were giving birth because they said that they didn't want to be a part of bringing another sinner into the world. If a Jewish boy or girl was to marry a Gentile, the family of that Jewish boy or girl wouldn't throw a wedding, they would throw a funeral because they said that it was as if their son or daughter was dead to them. That's how bad the Jews the Gentiles. The, this hatred was so great that God knew He would have to do something extraordinary for this early church, the early Jewish church, to welcome the Gentiles in. Remember in Acts 2, the church is birthed. There's 120 in the upper room and they're praying, and the Spirit of God falls on them and they start speaking in other languages. And that day, 3,000 men. Jewish proselytes who were visiting Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, they, they heard that God being praised in their native tongue, and they saw it as a miracle, and they got born again. They were baptized. 3,000 souls were added. A few days later, about 5,000 more souls were added in the same way. Well, in Acts chapter 8, Paul Saul at this time is persecuting the church greatly, and everybody's fleeing except for the apostles. Fleeing for their life. And this one guy, Philip, who was one of the original deacons, he finds himself in Samaria. Samaria was a place where the Assyrians uh, had come and settled after they had taken the northern tribes captive, and they started intermarrying, interbreeding with the Israelites. And now these half-Assyrians and half-Jewish people became a new race, the Samaritans. And the Jews hated the Samaritan. The Samaritans hated the Jews so much so that when Jesus came to the woman at the well in Samaria, remember what she said? The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritan.
1: They had nothing in common. They wouldn't even <laughs> so
0: much so that they wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would walk, go go miles out of the way to go around it. But Philip is in Samaria, and he's, he's preaching, and people are believing in him. And the apostles hear about it in Jerusalem, and so they send Peter and John to Samaria to check it out. And it's when Peter and John get there, and they start preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and laying hands on people, that the Spirit of God falls on them, and they start speaking in tongues the exact same way that the 120 did in the upper room back on Pentecost. You see, God was showing them, hey, I'm doing the exact same thing in this group of Samaritans that I did with you guys. It's okay to bring them into the household of God. And then in chapter 10, Cornelius, who was a righteous man, he was a God-fearing man, he has a vision, and he sees an angel. Now, this angel could have just preached the gospel to him. He could have told him about Jesus, and Cornelius could have got saved by this angel. But no, the angel said, hey, go get Peter in Joppa. He's at this guy, salmon of Tanner's house. And so Cornelius walks all the way down to Joppa. And while he's going there, Peter has a vision. And God shows him in this vision, these sheets with all kinds of animals in it, saying, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no, God, I haven't eaten anything unclean. And what was God's response? Don't call the things that I've made unclean. Showing him, hey, you know what? You, you could accept anything that I've made. And then he goes back with Cornelius to his house and ends up preaching to his whole household. And as Peter's preaching to the household of Cornelius, this Gentile house, the Spirit of God falls on them, and they start speaking in tongues the exact same way that the Samaritans did two chapters earlier in Acts 8, the exact same way that the apostles did in Acts chapter 2. You see, God was doing all this and orchestrating all of this just so that these Jewish Christians would understand that God was receiving
1: the Gentiles as well that God was accepting them in the house of faith. In Acts 13, Paul
0: is commissioned to go with Barnabas and preach to the Gentiles. They go, they have great success. The Gentiles start repenting and placing their faith in Jesus. They get saved. But now there's a problem. How do these two groups coexist? How do they get along together? I mean, one group observes the Sabbath. One group eats kosher. The other group doesn't observe the Sabbath. The other group eats hot dogs and bacon and things like that. You know, how are these groups going to get along? And it was such a problem that it had to be taken up at what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is what they came to in Acts chapter 15. After they stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known, From long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning from God among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from the things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. For Moses, from the ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. In other words, unity hasn't ever been an easy thing for the church. From its very start, they had a hard time integrating Jew and Gentile. Bringing people that were different together was a hard thing. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 13, Paul writes this, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this: that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Right? This problem was existing in the early churches. Division and disunity. Might be our fallen nature, but God desires something different from His people. In Christ, in our spiritual realm, God desires that His people resemble Him. He desires that we would be unified and be one, the same way that He is one. The the, the Shema, what the Jews read every day, what's on their doors as you go in and out. You know, it, it's what they recite at their morning, noon, and dinner time prayers. It's the most famous verse to the every Jew, they say this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? God is one. He, he, he's a plural one. He's a united one, and he wants us to be one as well. Three times in the New Testament, Paul says pretty much the same thing. In Romans 10:12, in Galatians 3:28, and Colossians. Paul says that there is no distinctions in Christ Jesus. In Romans 10.12, he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. In Jesus' final prayer, that night that he's going to be betrayed, Satan's already entered Judas, he's already gone off to betray him, Jesus has given his last will and testament in the upper room to his disciples. And now they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to be arrested. And we have this wonderful chapter, John 17, recorded in the Bible, where Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of the saints. It's kind of a preview of Christ's intercessory ministry that he has now. And in, in Hebrews, it says that he sits at the right hand of the Father where he ever lives to make intercession for us. So Hebrew, or I'm sorry, John 17 is kind of a preview of what Jesus is continually praying day by day on our behalf. And in that prayer, in John 17, he prayed three times that his disciples would be one as he and the Father are one. He prayed that we'd have unity. In fact, our unity, he said, is going to be the way that the world would know that the Father sent him. That's interesting. In John 17, 21, he says this, that they may all be one. That's his prayer. That we would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that the world also may be in us, or that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He wants us to be one, as he and the Father are one, so that the world will know that he was sent by the Father. So in Ephesians 2 11 through 22, this is a passage about unity, all about how God has made us one in Christ. And as we look closer at it, we'll hopefully learn a bit about how uh, we can be unified or bring un- un- unbelievers into the unity of God and promote unity in his body. Right? We're going to learn how we could bring unbelievers to Christ, bring unity to them in Christ, and how we could have greater unity in the body as a church. Jesus says this in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And if you think about it, that's what this passage is all about, being a peacemaker, bringing unity to people who were far off. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, what we covered last week, Paul gave us our past, present, and future. We were dead, we're made alive with God, and we await future glory. In this passage, Paul's going to do something similar. This passage outlines our alienation, our reconciliation, and our identification. Tonight, though, uh, for sake of time, uh, we're going to focus on that first one, our alienation. And we're going to see that we were alienated from God and his people, but we've been reconciled to both and have a new identity in the body of Christ for the church. But for letter A, fill in the word alienation. We need to remember who we once were. So fill in alienation and were. You know, it's important for us to remember where we came from. God wanted the children of Israel to remember they too were once lost slaves in Egypt before God saved them. In fact, that's what the Passover meal was designed to be. Year after year, they were to have this meal, and it was to remind them of the way that God saved them out of bondage to Egypt. When the children asked, why do we eat bitter herbs, the parents were to remind them that their life was bitter before God saved them. When they say, why do we have to eat unleavened bread? It was to remind them that God saved them in a hurry. They didn't have time to leaven the bread. There's an urgency to being saved. There's an urgency to getting right with God. The lamb wasn't probably a kid's favorite meal. I don't know one kid that enjoys eating lamb, but lamb was a part of this meal. And so the kids would ask, why do we have to eat lamb? Why can't we have chicken nuggets? Why can't we have mac and cheese? we got to have this lamb every year. And it was to point to the Lamb of God who would take away their sins. It would point forward to the sacrifice that would save them. (laughs) But why is it so important that we remember who we were before we were saved? Why is that something God wants us to continually remember? Well, number one, that we keep worshiping him. And when I remember who I was, it pumps my heart to worship God for, who, for the fact that I am not who I used to be, right? Number two, we don't want to become prideful and look down upon others. See, if I remember who I was, I remember I was no different than these people that aren't saved. I was no different than these people that I need to go and try to read. A couple years ago, right? We were locked down because of COVID. And then George Floyd was killed. I'm sure we all remember that. And then these riots started happening. The Black Lives Matter riots. And they were on TV. And it's not like we could go anywhere or do anything. So we just sat there watching these riots on TV. And, and I remember I was getting angry. I was getting really, really angry. I'm like, why are they letting them do this? We need to bring people in. Stop this. We need to put an end to this. And I remember right then, God spoke to my heart. I actually looked down, and I, I saw these tattoos I have on the top of my feet. I don't like them. they embarrassed me. But, but, but through that, the Lord spoke
1: to me. And, and he said, hey, if this was happening 20 years ago, you'd be doing the exact same thing. You, you, you would be that exact same person if this was happening 20 years ago. He says, why are you mad at them? I'm not mad at them. Because I see them as sheep without a shepherd. That convicted me. <laughs> it really did. And then I started thinking about
0: Psalm 23. And I started thinking about everything that the shepherd provides for the sheep in Psalm 23. And I started thinking about, imagine if I didn't have these my life. If I didn't have these blessings. What would my life be like? Imagine if I didn't have Someone to lead me to green pastures, and I had to go out and fend for myself every single day. Imagine if I didn't have a safe place to be refreshed in the still waters. Imagine if I didn't have someone to restore my soul and the hurts that this world causes just compiled on, until the point where I just became jaded and, and, and callous. Imagine if I didn't have someone to show me the path of righteousness. Imagine if I didn't have God's presence as a comfort and a protection in my life. Imagine if I didn't have the promise of heaven. You see, without these tremendous blessings, which God has freely given us, we would be no different than the immoral heathen around us whom we dislike and complain about.
1: The very people that I was angry at, the very people I was complaining about, is who I would have been without the grace of God, right there, but for the grace of God go I. And these two verses are going to tell us
0: that exact same thing and they're using different examples. But for number one, fill in: we were hated and we're haters. We were hated and we were haters. Uh, Ephesians 2.11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So there's two groups here there's the uncircumcision and there's the circumcision. Right? And both groups hated each other. You know, God gave Israel circumcision to be a sign of the covenant he made with them. Right? That's how circumcision came, the sign of the covenant. It was to remind them that they belonged to God. Visual reminder, but it was also to be a reminder of their own sinfulness. See, no matter how holy they could become, no matter how righteous they could act, no matter how far they could produce or they, they could progress in Judaism, they could still only reproduce sinners. That, 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 that's what circumcision represented, right? In, in their reproduction, all they could bring forth was other little. Sinners, and if you've been around little kids very long, it doesn't take you very long to realize that they're sinners, right? They're born with the same nature.
1: The problem is, is that they took this blessing and used it as a distinction, but they used it to look
0: down upon and hate the people who weren't circumcised. Circumcision was supposed to be a blessing for the children of Israel, right? But but it ended up becoming something that was. Harmful to them because it produced pride. It produced self
1: righteousness. It caused them to hate the people that weren't circumcised. This is evidenced in the way that David, what he calls Goliath, right? He says, This uncircumcised Philistine is going to defy the armies of the living God. So this term, it became a pejorative. It it became uh, a way to make fun of someone. And by the way, the
0: uncircumcised Gentiles used circumcision as a pejorative against the, the Israelites. It just became a way of looking down upon each other. And by the way, this circumcision made with in the flesh by hands, it really wasn't a, a guarantee of spiritual maturity anyway. It, it, it's funny how we take the things that don't really even matter much, and divide over them, isn't it? And we kind of have a tendency to do that. But circumcision didn't guarantee that anyone saved. In Romans two, Paul makes it clear that God doesn't care about outward circumcision; it's the circumcision of the heart that he does. right. So this circumcision wasn't committing anybody to God anyways. It didn't make anybody better. You weren't any better for being circumcised or not being circumcised. And now in verse 12, he's going to describe five things we didn't have as unsaved heathen that caused the circumcision to despise us. And they aren't that different of a list The things I mentioned that the shepherd provides. Number two, we were without, and then we were without Christ. Now, the Jews didn't have Christ and that we did, but they had the promise of the coming Messiah. They had the promise that this deliverer would come and would atone for their sin. You see, every Yom Kippur and every sacrifice, for that matter, pointed forward to the, forward to the Lamb of God that would take away their sins. Uh, these sacrifices were more than shadows or more than types, though. You see, be, by placing their faith in these sacrifices, they could have. Confidence that their sins were removed, their sins were done away with, that they were no longer in their sins. So to be without Christ means that you're still in your sins. It means that you're a slave to your sins. It
1: means that you have no hope for your sins. You see, before I was a Christian, I never thought I would be sober.
0: Not, not one day. I had conceded that I would abuse substances my entire life. They had a power over me. But in Christ, I have that power broken, and now I could be free from those things. The people in the world don't have that hope. Secondly, we were without God's people. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We don't probably consider the body of Christ near to the blessing that it is, but could you imagine not having the church, not having brothers and sisters to encourage you to serve You to spur you on to love and to good works, to bear your burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, to weep and mourn with
1: you. How about to keep you aligned to the chief cornerstone? You see, the lost people in the world, they have none of these blessings from the church.
0: We were without God's covenants and promises, filling covenants and promises. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We sing this song downstairs called. The God of Covenant we like that song the phrase, the God of, you're the God of covenant, one of the phrases in the song that we sing and this is encouraging because a covenant was an agreement or contract which binds two parties together. The law that was given to Moses it came in the form of a suzerain treaty or a su- suzerain covenant and a suzerain covenant it had certain elements. This is what the ancient Sumerian covenants were. They were these suzerain treaties. And it would start out with the, the suzerain, the one who initiated the covenant. In this case, it would be God. And it usually listed what this suzerain had done for the people. In this case, it was, I delivered you from Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. And then it made promises. He says, hey, I'll be your God. You'll have all these blessings in me. But then it also had stipulations. The children of Israel had rules or stipulations to obey if they're going to stay in covenant. And then it made promises of provisions and of blessing. So this covenant, this treaty, was a huge blessing. The, the law, this, the Ten Commandments, were such a blessing to the children of Israel. The, the church is also defined as a covenant community. You see, we have tremendous blessings promised to us. God's presence is with us, God's protection, God's provision. But when we didn't have these, we just went the way of the world like everybody else. That's what Paul says in verse 2, right? We were dead in our trespasses, just going along with the world. But God's promises are our hope in difficult situations. And you didn't always have these promises. The people in the world, the people that were trying to evangelize, they don't have these promises, they don't have God's covenant. Next, we were without hope on the word hope, because we're having no hope. Here, Paul's speaking of our eternal hope, our hope of heaven. Colossians 1.27, it says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's speaking of the rapture. The hope that we have that we are going to be made perfect in Christ one day. Hebrews 6.19 This is the hope we have as an anchor
1: for our soul a hope both sure and steadfast. God provides so much hope. Now, it's been said that you could live 40 days without food.
0: You could live three to four days without water. You could live eight minutes without air. You can't live without hope. The moment you
1: give up hope, the moment there is no reason to keep on living, He won't keep on living. There's this prison in Roquette, Paris,
0: which they would send criminals that were condemned to death. And as you're entering this prison, they had these huge iron fences and this iron gate that you'd walk into. And above the iron gate, it said this. It said,
1: Abandon hope, all ye who enter there. If we think about it, that's what this world is living out. They have no hope. They're dead in their trespasses. But we have a hope. And we could bring that hope to them through the gospel. Lastly, we were without God. on the word God. Without God
0: in the world, Paul says. The thing that's interesting to me was there was no shortage of gods in Ephesus. Read Acts 19, where Paul's in Ephesus. They have all kinds of gods. They have Dionysus, uh, all kinds of gods to worship. Or how about him in Athens in Acts 17? They've got a, a statue for every god. They even got a statue in Athens for the unknown god, in case they forgot one of the gods to honor. Did you know that the early church in Rome, uh, that they were accused of being atheists? I know that sounds pretty crazy, right? That Christians were accused of being Atheists. But that was one of the charges that the Romans levied against the church. I know this sounds ridiculous, but their culture was extremely polytheistic. They had all kinds of gods. They, they, they worshipped the, the rulers. They had gods for everything. The problem they had with the Christians was they didn't have enough gods. Their one god didn't cut it. Right? And so they accused them of being atheists, all right, but these gods that they had they weren't gods at all; they didn't exist. You could take up any other God than the true and living God, and you're essentially godless. you don't possess God, and life without God offers no comfort, no peace, no healing, and no hope and that's exactly where this lost world is, and if we're going to reach them. We need to remember this. If we're going to have God's heart for the lost, we need to remember this. Matthew 11 or Matthew 9:36. Jesus, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were
1: distressed and dispirited, like sheep without a shepherd. We need to remember that that's where the world is. They're sheep without a shepherd,
0: and we need to treat them as such. So, if we're going to keep ourselves from pride and self-righteousness, we do good to remember who we were before God's grace entered our lives. Amen? So, God, I do thank you. I thank you that although there's so many reasons why people hate each other, separate from each other, for groups and play, things like that in the world, you, you take people that are different, bring them together. You've made us one new man in Christ us, Lord. I pray that you would be the head of this man, that we would see you as the head and we would allow you to direct our body in the way that you'd want us to go in reconciling the world to you. Lord, may you have preeminence in your church. May you have preeminence in our lives, Lord, and may we just grow closer to you and follow you in a way that makes you appealing. I pray for those that aren't here. I pray that you'd bring them back to us, Lord. I thank you for the new people that you've brought us. I pray that you would just bless them, Lord, and just be with them tonight, this week, Lord. And and I pray that we'd come back next week and finish this chapter and
1: just have a great time together. But we love you. We commit these things to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.